Mexico's ongoing drug war has thousands of collateral victims, many of whom live in Tijuana. In 2018, the city hit a record of homicides, many of whom were young people who died during small street-level conflicts between gangs. Days ago, a group of these victims' parents went to an unfinished house in East Tijuana on a tip that some of their children were buried there. Despite threats of violence, they risked the exhumation. Here's how it came to this. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Wendy Fry, you're a reporter covering all things in the Baja region, and you've been covering what is essentially the, the long-term effects of this ongoing drug conflict. So let's start with some context. Can you characterize a series of events that led to this story? How common is it that young people are disappeared like we've heard by these victims in Mexico? Right, so you have the, the, the drug um, death toll, the number that you mentioned. I think it, in 2018, they closed out like 2,500, 2,518, I think, in 2018, which was a record high. And that's the death toll that's on the record. But then you also have thousands of people that go missing um, every year. And even of the number of missing persons cases, which I think there were, I think there's 1,400 for the past decade or so, but that doesn't even capture the whole scope of the issue because a lot of people do not trust authorities, uh, in, especially in Mexico and in Tijuana. They will not go to the police, to the local police, because they're afraid of being accused or being associated with uh, um, a, a criminal element. They go and report child teenager has gone missing. So a lot of people don't even ever report these missing person cases. In the case of the people that we were with um, over the weekend, they had reported those cases to the authorities and they felt that the authorities were not were not taking it seriously, were not um, investigating those cases. Mm-hmm. And just so we kind of understand the situations, what are some of the factors that caused this to happen so much kind of? Give an explanation as to how the government has failed to kind of combat this violence. So TJ is, you know, a route north for drugs. It's a, a historic area where drug cartels historically have battled for control of that market. Because if you get control of Tijuana, you have basic control over shipment to the United States. Um, so that causes turf war in Tijuana. But then what also happened um, at, with the fall of El Chapo, with the Sinaloa cartel, and um, some other some other things that happened with the um, United States government's attention to the cap, to the Arcano Pilot cartel, taking them down, uh, that, that splintered up all these cartels. It splintered them into more like gangs that aren't actually transporting their their material, their drug material, into the United States. Rather, they're, they're finding a local market in Tijuana. They're selling drugs to people who are addicted to drugs inside TJ. And so that causes battle over three corners um, between them. And very, very violent, very bloody battles between these different neighborhoods, these different tiny neighborhoods that are very much controlled by the gang. And um, the way that these people feel that the Mexican government has failed them is that they, they feel that a lot of times the, the lower level police officers are bought off to allow this activity to continue to happen. And so they feel like that they cannot take seriously that the police will investigate a case if if their loyalty actually lies to the people who may be paying for bribes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. It sounds like a series of structures, you know, extra governmental structures have fallen, allowing for things to get more tense and therefore more violence. So it's kind of like a domino effect of tragedy. Right, exactly. And then and, and not to say that all of all of Tijuana is is dangerous or scary either. Um, you know, we always want to keep that perspective that that this is happening in areas of people who already have very little, little limited access to education, to fruits and vegetables, to any kind of um, jobs that are, you know, quality jobs worth working. And so they just kind of fall into these neighborhoods that end up being very ignored by the government as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, your reporting follows the story of Barbara Martinez, whose 17-year-old son, Caesar was disappeared in 2018. Can you tell her her story up to the events that occurred this weekend at the house? Right. So she has been trying to get authorities' attention to the disappearance of her son, uh, Caesar. Caesar. Um, he went missing in 2018. Um, she shortly after, so just a couple months after he went missing, she's looking for him everywhere. She's posting on Facebook and she's going to all his ex- his friends that he might have been with, asking when the last time that they saw him. And she received some anonymous Facebook messages saying, you know, I know what happened to your son and this is the house where he's at. And they pointed out the house. They directed her to this house um, and she knocked on the door. And what she says happened is that there were two people inside renting the house. And she said, hi, um, I was told my son is here, you know? Um, so would it be possible for me to look around? Would it be, have you seen him? You know? And they said, no, we're just renters here. So you can't enter the property. But if you come back tomorrow, the owner's going to be here and maybe he'll let you in. So you, maybe he'll answer some questions. So she came back the next day and the entire house was cleaned out completely. Everything was gone. The doors were open to the street, he says. And so she started she started looking around. Um, she started she, you know, found uh, a bunch of evidence that whatever was going on in this house was not not legal, not good. Um, and then she started receiving more messages. Uh, the person that directed her to that house initially, he died a few days later. In a, he was shot, um, and authorities confirmed that he died from this shooting, but not that it had anything to do with him directing her to this house. So then she says some time went by. You know, she kept trying to go to the house. She kept taking the messages, all the evidence to the what, like the attorney general of the, the state prosecutor's office. Um, not getting any traction there, so she decided to start trying to dig on this house. And this was several months ago. She ended up finding uh, remains. And, uh, but not her son. So it turned out it was one of her son's best friends and a few of his other acquaintances. So she strongly, strongly believes that her son's remains are on this property. She's been told by the state attorney general that she's going to be arrested. She continues entering the property because it's not her property. Um, And they say that they're very concerned that parents, you know, breaking into the concrete foundation of the home and digging all around, where it's kind of not even that sturdy of a structure anyway. So they're concerned it's going to fall down. So she's been waiting and waiting. When we did our first story, she had a meeting the next week with the attorney general, who at that time told her, we're going to assist you. We're going to go in, help you. We're going to do the search, you know, in a proper way, in a, you know, um, for evidence. 
like a crime scene investigator. So she's been waiting and waiting. Um, she says, and other parents say that they were scheduled to go with them this weekend and the state attorney backed out at the last minute. I haven't confirmed that with the state attorney general. They haven't responded if that's true or not. But she decided that she felt like she'd waited long enough and she was going to go ahead and go into the house and try to what he's still there at this at this time i think it's 72 hours later uh, her son mm -hmm. remains yeah and she's uh, not the only parent who's been trying to find some closure and some answers by finding the bodies of their children can you tell me about this collective of parents that have been going together on these you know expeditions trying to find their bodies of children right there's a lot of them there's a lot of them so there's I think about nine groups in Baja, California, and then they've all formed themselves under an, an umbrella group too, um, for, for just organizational purposes and to lobby more with the state government. And so there's probably a couple dozen in each one. So there's hundreds of parents that um, have decided to, that there's safety in numbers. For example, when the police showed up uh, on Saturday, they were in a much better position to say, no, we're not leaving this property because there was several dozen of them, which would make harder for police to arrest all of them, right? So they're sort of forming together safety in numbers um, to oppose the authority. Mm -hmm. And uh, could you describe what you saw when the, they were actually, you know, digging and trying to find some answers? Because you were there at the scene, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it's, it, it's like a construction scene, right? So they're breaking into the concrete, they have a concrete cutter and they have a jackhammer and um uh the mother that that we've been profiling quite a bit barbara martinez received a phone call while they were there so this neighborhood um if you understand the the, the neighborhood is sort of like a one-way in kind of neighborhood right like there's one way in everybody arrived together so very quickly when the group arrived it seemed like the whole neighborhood was aware that they were there and then very shortly after that, she received a phone call from an anonymous call, is what she said. And um, she's talking to this person on the phone. She put it on speakerphone so the other parents could hear and so the other reporters could hear. Uh, and this person on the phone is directly, basically directing her, telling her where, where she will find the remains of her son. So they, they're saying, you know, it's to the right of the bathroom, about a meter, meter and a half. Um, so obviously, the the inference is this person that's calling is, was somehow involved. Either he had knowledge of this happening, or he's gained knowledge since since the since the murder um, of exactly where her son is. But he's directing her to where it is, and um, so that's where they started looking. Um, it, I mean, it was like very a lot of uh, debris and soot flying everywhere. Um, for the day, it was very physically trying on the parents who were doing the big turns in and out, but they were basically shoveling for hours and hours and hours. Um, and so far, they have not found any more remains. And can you describe what it's like to be there? Because I, I imagine these parents are incredibly driven. They want to do whatever they can, can to potentially find, you know, some answers. But what was it like experiencing that? No, I mean, they're, they're, they're traumatized, right? I mean, so they're very clearly traumatized. Um, it's a very traumatic thing to try to, for your child to go missing in the first place. It's tra traumatizing. And then 
on top of all of it to have to not not only not get the support from the authorities to go find find their son, but to have to fight the authorities to um, find their son. So at one point, you know, you'll be talking to someone and then all of a sudden they're screaming and then all of a sudden they're back to calm and then they're crying, which is very emotional um, and, and uh, very difficult to know, you know, how people are going to feel from one moment to the next, just because it's, it's such a, a hard thing to wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing sounds incredibly dangerous. Uh, besides the resistance from governments, uh, have these parents been targeted by the gangs? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the, the whatever gang controls that neighborhood was quite aware the moment that they arrived. Um, and uh, it did appear that there were people kind of standing at lookout on the at, at the you know perimeter of the neighborhood. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're taking a very huge risk. There are they're not. The woman says that she's received some Facebook messages before she, the first time she ever went to search the house saying, you know, that's my graveyard. That's my burial ground where I put bodies, basically. So don't disturb it and don't, you know, don't alert authorities to where I'm hiding these people. And once um, she did, you know, she said she, she, had, she upset them. But I think she also says sort of, you know, her, her perseverance or her persistence in this matter has sort of kind of, um, I guess, gotten their attention to where they're like, she's going to go find, <laughs> you know, she's going to, she's going to go into this property and there's not really not much we can do about it. So um, they kind of, I don't know, gave up on fighting with her with it, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. And, but she says yeah. she has received threats for, for doing that for, you know, she's received Facebook threats. Um, it certainly, certainly seemed like they were risking being arrested on Saturday for sure. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in covering this story, what reporting challenges have you run into? Because you have, as you said, people who are incredibly emotional and that, you know, messes with your ability to remember certain details. You don't have the advantage of documents because the government isn't really doing much. How do you cover this kind of thing that is so nebulous? Right. Uh, there's uh, luckily there's uh, some academics who've been covering this for for a lot at um, UCSD or USD, one of the colleges, or maybe both of them. They've been helping a lot with. They have a lot of historical contacts and, uh, and documents that they've been sending um, and helping me get get the background of this and the scope of the problem in Mexico. And then yeah, talking that you know just have to take your time with the interviews. What I've been doing is taking, you know, it's not an interview that you just go and ask a couple questions. It takes several hours um, to, to talk through. And then um, the authorities, you know, they, they, they the, as far as the state um, spokesman for the attorney general, basically just says, let me check, let me check. And then I never really hear back. So, or he says, we're not going to comment on that. So, um, it's hard to mm-hmm. really know. I mean, I, I definitely report what, I saw happening so that, that you know at least some of it I was able to witness myself mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and kind of zooming out a little bit, uh, the city of Tijuana has been through a lot in recent years. I think about the coverage that you've done at the Union Tribune and also uh, Sandra Dibble uh, several years ago. The city has been strained by, you know, hundreds or thousands, actually, of homicides. And then there was the migrant caravan, which further strained city resources. And now there's a pandemic that's raging much more intensely in Tijuana. How much are all of these things making the situation more tenuous? Because as you described, people who get stuck in this you know, drug war, drug trade, tend to be on the edge to begin with and then throw on all these extra things. It seems like you know, it's just becoming the, you know, the, the final thing that breaks them. Uh, it's, it's, so TJ, I think we've talked about this before. They have just sort of a very um, entrepreneurial or like... Um, what is it? The word I'm looking for. Go gettery. Resilience. They have a lot of resilience, you know, and so um, it's almost like they almost always bounce back. Like that, right? They get to a point where, and I feel like that was the way right before this pandemic hit. They were just right to the point where, like, they were about. They, some hotels were opening. You know, there was the culture and the art scene coming back, and the food scene coming back. And then uh, it's almost like every time it gets to that brink of where. It's about to sort of break through um, and 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 show some progress. Then it has this bad luck again, or this you know this bad event, um, uncontrollable event. But uh, again, it's a city with a, an enormous amount of resilience, and um, you know they're they're modifying things. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, drive-up movie theaters, concert places popping up everywhere. There's a bunch of med spas popping up everywhere where people can take care of their health. Um, and so, you know, I guess the hope is that they'll they'll, they'll find a way to bring, bring the economy back. But definitely for the people who are, in, who are already in sort of the lower um, economic ro- roles there, the people that are already on the lower economic um, level, they're definitely suffering. They're suffering and they're hungry. I think the hunger percentage has um, people who don't have access to healthy food right now has jumped up to maybe um, it was at like 15%. Now it's up to 30 or more, um, according to the nonprofits that work in this area. So people are struggling to find food. Um, definitely the unemployment is high now. Is really, um, you know, the thing with the, the drug war and the drug trade, it, uh, it impacts tourism. If people are afraid to come to Tijuana, uh, then that you know, then they're not going to be staying in hotels. They're not going to be going out to eat in the nice restaurants. And that affects the economics um, of the entire city. And so it's really sort of, you know, a spiraling down sort of problem if it doesn't get under control. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, when considering uh, the state of the drug war, right now um is there any sense of movement because um, i'm just kind of guessing here but you imagine a pandemic and the restrictions put in place by many governments would make it more difficult to get drugs from point a to point b therefore you know creating you know different changes in the market what is the current status of things now uh yeah you're definitely right the uh, the extra attention at the border the extra border check that we've talked about um, and border lines is making it more difficult uh, to get to get drugs across the border right now. And so they'll the, the cartels and the criminal organizations will shift. They'll pivot to kidnapping um, or uh, you know, not human smuggling right now because the, because the border situation. But they're they're fluid 
um, organizations. And so they'll pivot to find some other way to, to make money, mm-hmm. probably kidnapping. Um, so we saw that back in 2007, 2008, uh, there was a, a spike in, in that, um, people were almost afraid to go out. Uh, and so, yeah, they definitely, the authorities will definitely not want to see a spike in kidnapping, um, or missing Americans. Like we've been hearing a few kind of high profile stories about missing Americans. I actually checked though, uh, and the numbers are about the same as of this, as of this, as of this time this year. Compared to last year, the number of missing Americans, Americans who've gone missing or have been kidnapped or anything like that in Baja, California, is about the same compared to last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you continue your coverage of these parents who are trying to, you know, get closure and find their children's remains, uh, what's kind of the plan? Uh, how are you planning on continuing covering this story that could change at any minute? Well, we're, um, I mean, I'm checking in with the mom every day and she's been there the whole time and she's I just talked with her this morning and she's just kind of very desperate right now very um you know disillusioned and upset um but she's so far that they haven't found anything and she's kind of committed and the other parents have committed to staying there um so right now it'll just be monitoring to whether if they find something or if they decide that they've exhausted their search there and decide to go ahead and and call it quits um, will be the next thing that happens. And then just, you know, I think that a lot of reporters in Baja, not just me, but like a lot of the, the reporters that report for the Spanish language media here are following up with the, with the authorities on the case. Mm-hmm. All right. Wendy Fry, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. It's Tuesday, so listen to the latest episode of Name Drop. Here, the UT's Abby Hamlin and Chrissy Totten interview Davey Smith, Chief of Infectious Diseases at UC San Diego. Name Drop San Diego is available wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is made possible by subscribers to the San Diego Union Tribune. As we live through this momentous time in history, the truth and facts matter. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go to uniontrib.com slash subscribe. I'll be taking the rest of the week off, so see you Monday. Until next time.